Welcome to Season 4, Episode 3 of Tiny Expeditions. I'm Dr. Sarah Sharman, here to help you understand the science. And my name is Chris Powell. I'll be your storytelling guide for this episode. We promised you that in this season, we would cover some of the many ways DNA technology is impacting our future. This means the future for all of us, but it also includes our planet. In today's expedition, we'll learn about a tiny plant with big impact on our environment. But first, let's talk about climate change. According to a new United Nations report, the devastating impacts of human-caused climate change are happening Starfish now. warnings yet, not only about what could happen, but what's already Missions been of greenhouse gases need to peak within the next three years if we're to stave off the worst effects of climate change. And even then, we'd still need new technology to suck carbon dioxide out of the skies by the middle of the century. Talking about climate change can be scary, and it's important for us to be able to differentiate between what is fact and what is fiction. In order to do that, we need to first figure out, well, how did we get to where we are now? Throughout history, technology and innovation have propelled us into new places. We've gone across the oceans, we've gone across the continental United States, and even into space. However, as we've spread and we've traveled throughout the world, our carbon footprint has also traveled with us, and with this, CO2 levels have risen exponentially. So why is this such a big deal? When carbon dioxide, or CO2, is released into the atmosphere, it creates sort of an insulating blanket. A little bit of CO2 is great to maintain the ambient temperature we need to survive, but too much traps excess heat, raising the temperature on our planet. Thankfully, nature has given us a way to combat this. Carbon cycling is this uh, idea that, that organisms uh, metabolize um, and they take up carbon. That's the voice of Jeremy Schmutz, faculty investigator at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Um, they use that carbon for life and then they do things like release gases. In the case of plants, uh, they also accumulate biomass and then that biomass is left behind afterwards. And so what have plants uptake um, uh, this uh, and sequester the carbon and then they leave it behind. Um, so that happens most commonly if you think about trees, for example, which you know leave these, these sort of big trunks behind uh, them and then those big trunks are like concentrated carbon. And then as humans, we do things like chop the trees down, use them to grow things um, or to burn them. Um, and turn them back into, uh, into carbon, uh, carbon dioxide. Our superstar plant for this episode, sphagnum moss, can store carbon for hundreds of thousands of years. If you're into gardening, you may recognize the name from your potting mix. When sphagnum is alive, it is a vibrant green and red color, and it lives in peat bogs. Sphagnum um, works to alter its environment. Um, and, it, and, and, so, and one of the reasons for that is that it... Um, it lives in the bog, and the bog is like sometimes wet and sometimes dry, and there's like low-lying parts, which is uh, which is called hollows, and then there's parts that are called hummocks, which are kind of the bumps that come out of there. And different sphagnum have uh, species have kind of specialized, and so there's this radiation almost between hummock to hollow, and so some of them live in water most of the year, other than when it's cold or frozen. Um, and some of them live kind of in the dry, on the dry, and then there's this lawn species that kind of, you know, goes from the, the top of the hills down into the bogs on the bottom. And each one of those have specialized, as we're talking about, you know, um, uh, looking at hundreds of millions of years of evolution, they specialized into these sort of different niches uh, along there. 
And so they uh, will do things like like modify the pH of the soils. So as these plants grow and die and reproduce, then their materials get left behind. And it doesn't degrade because very few microbes uh, can survive. And you need those microbes and fungi to be able to break down uh, material from the plants. And so that's one of the reasons why the peat bogs were able to grow and continue to have this super dense um, carbon content in them is because they didn't allow um, bacteria and fungi to get in there and to eat it and break it down uh, like you would if you were talking about like a like a normal terrestrial plant where it dropped the leaves and the leaves would get digested in, into leaf matter by lots of things. Um, and so, P, so the pH in these bogs really prevents that from occurring. Peat bogs are a dynamic ecosystem, but unless you live in the northern part of the United States, in the UK or Russia, you probably haven't seen one. So a, a peat bog is a it's a type of wetland. That's the voice of our second guest, Dave Weston, a staff scientist at the Oak Ridge National Laboratory. When you when you enter one of these peat bogs, it's a very spongy ground, um, and it's spongy because it's composed of a bunch of dead organic material, uh, largely plant material. And of that plant material, most of it is composed of these sphagnum mosses, and then after it degrades and it becomes that spongy material I was talking about um, that's known as peat. And this is the stuff that is mined and you buy this in your garden center or um, scotch distilleries use this to, to, for their, to make their scotch and put that particular peaty flavor in there, used as a heating source in Europe for many years. Um, so it's a very unique ecosystem. It's an absolutely beautiful ecosystem um, to visit um, but also important from an economic perspective, but um, from our interest, from a carbon cycling perspective, it's it's extremely important. Peatlands themselves, or I should say uh, peat bogs in particular, if you look at the total land area on Earth, they're only about 3%. So they, they occupy a relatively small amount of land area on a global scale, yet they contain about 30% of all the soil carbon in that dead organic peat I was talking about. It is amazing that peat bogs store 30% of our terrestrial carbon. That's great news, as long as the carbon stays in the bog. And so the concern is that with the temperature changes and warming, that will then start um, the, the reducing the sequestration that's going on and then potentially turning into a, um, a, a net CO2 release coming from these uh, peat bogs. And then that can start this cycle where that then increases the temperature of the planet because you're adding greenhouse gases in the environment. And then that continues to drive the release of the carbon from these uh, from these peat bogs. And right now where we are with uh, carbon, or in this case carbon in the atmosphere, is we want to keep it all in the ground, if at all possible, whether that's um, you know pumping more oil um, and using more oil, we want to keep that in the ground. Uh, we want to keep in the natural systems ground because they can, this is, the, because that's, it's a it's huge amount of carbon that could potentially come out and be released into the, into the environment and the atmosphere um, if these uh, sphagnum get pushed so far that they can't do what they're doing now, which is this ecosystem engineering to try to maintain this store, uh, uh, that maintains a store of carbon um, uh, underground there. It's difficult to really envision how quickly plants will be affected by our changing climate without exposing them to extreme conditions. And that's exactly what Dr. Weston and his colleagues at Spruce are trying to do. The acronym Spruce actually stands for the Spruce and Peatland Responses Under Changing Environments. And it's, it's a large Department of Energy supported project that is on U.S. Um, Forest Service uh, property. Um, and th this project um, essentially is a whole ecosystem warming experiment. So there's these 10 very large 
enclosures uh, 12 you know 12 meters <clears throat> excuse me 12 meters in diameter so this so 36 feet or so in diameter and um and these enclosures have a bit of an open top on them and we have 10 of them and think of them in sets of two sets of five and so in the first set of five you have what we call an, an ambient control condition meaning it's not adding any extra co2 or elevated temperature to it it's just sort of tracking what's on the outside and maintaining that and there might be a slight warming in that case just from um, indirect um, solar irradiance and then it steps up in smaller increments, in increments until you get to the plus nine. And so in that case, it's adding almost 17 degrees Fahrenheit or so of temperature in addition to what the outside temperature is. And it's doing that both above ground through forced air, as well as below ground through um, below ground warming. And then uh, between those two, you have three other enclosures now that have that stepwise changes in those um, warming scenarios and so you would have five of those that would have what we call our ambient or natural co2 condition and then you would have another one that's at about double that or so so it's about 900 um, uh, ppm co2 and so it's asking the question if you double the atmospheric co2 uh, concentration you know and you have this warming uh, response surface what's going on so it's a it's a massive um, uh, project, uh, something that I encourage your listeners to look up online if they get a chance. The different spruce chambers basically represent different climate futures. The scientists are taking many different measurements to assess how the plants and bogs are reacting to the changes. So naturally, Chris and I were curious about what the most extreme spruce chamber looked like. As far as a visual um, context, it's really dramatic. So you can see you know, I haven't been up to, to Minnesota in a few months, but there's still snow on the ground at this site. But you would see in the plus nine that it would. You would see the leaf green up and emergence coming out well before those in the ambient, changer, ambient chamber. So you would see that. And then in the middle of the season, uh, particularly in a drought year like we had two years ago, you can just see... Um, you know, so it, it looks pretty horrible in those really elevated um, enclosures. It looks pretty brown and, and nasty in there. Uh, and then, of course, the, the big finding that was recently published with um, Paul Hansen was um, these mosses are declining. I should say Rich Norby published that. We have these mosses declining with warming, and it seems to be linear. And then uh, from that, Paul Hansen's finding a correlation that that's actually changing the amount of carbon that's in the soil and it's actually being emitted as uh, CO2 and methane into the atmosphere. So it's a bit worrisome, um, the, um, those projections. Spruce is one project to look at the impact of climate change on peat box, but one project will not give us a total understanding of sphagnum moss and peat box. That's why we have to take multiple approaches like looking at the whole ecosystem, studying the microbial communities in the bog, and looking at the genetics of sphagnum moss. In order to study the genetics, scientists needed a reference genome. So when we create a reference genome... That's the voice of Dr. Adam Healy, a computational biologist at the Hudson Alpha Genome Sequencing Center. Uh, particularly in the case of sphagnum, this involves collaborating first with researchers who know a lot about the plant and go out in the field and select uh, a plant that has interesting biology that we would like to understand further. 
In sphagnum's case, we wanted to understand how sphagnum grows in response to environmental stress within peat bogs. Uh, within peat bogs, sphagnum tends to grow in mounds and valleys, and this dynamic influences how much carbon they can, they can sequester. So our two reference genomes that we sequence reflect those two extremes. One species prefers to grow up on mounds and the other prefers to grow down in valleys. Now, after selecting a reference, uh, we take it back to the lab and we grow it under sterile conditions. Uh, at that point, staff extracts DNA from plant tissue and prepare a sequencing library and then run that sample on a sequencer machine. The sequencer then tells you the individual bases in that organism's genome in long but fragmented pieces. And then it's up to a computational biologist to put those pieces together in a correct order to build individual chromosomes and use them to better understand the biology of a plant. Once the DNA puzzle is sequenced and put back together, scientists can start figuring out what it all means. In the case of the sphagnum genome, Dr. Healy and his colleagues were in for a few surprises. Early in the analysis of the sphagnum genome led to one of those classic aha moments in science where we found a really odd result and we followed it down a rabbit hole and found some pretty amazing results. So first, when we sequenced these two reference genomes, we noticed that there was an extra bit of sequence that we couldn't place. It didn't really fit anywhere. We first thought that perhaps we made a mistake. It wasn't until we looked at our second reference genome that we saw the same piece of sequence was unanchored again. So for this reason, we started to look at it more closely. It was this tiny piece of DNA, about a quarter of the size of other chromosomes in the genome, and it had some really unique characteristics to it. It was far more repetitive than other chromosomes, and it had far fewer genes on it. And it actually turns out that this piece of sequence was actually the sex chromosome in sphagnum, and it's one of the smallest sex chromosomes ever observed in plants so far. Sex chromosomes are a pair of chromosomes that determine the biological sex of an organism. We inherit one sex chromosome from mom and one from dad. In the case of humans, along with most placental mammals and some insects, snakes, fish, and plants, we have an XY chromosome system with an X and a Y chromosome. XX is a biological female and XY is a biological male. Sex chromosomes can play a role in some human diseases. And in plants, sex chromosomes can confer beneficial traits like better tasting valuable fruits or even certain climate adaptations. Well, what's really interesting about the sex chromosome comes into play in understanding in how sphagnum responds to environmental stress. Peat bogs are famously harsh places for plants to live. They're very acidic. In an experimental population of sphagnum, where we were trying to understand how sphagnum contends with this acidic stress, researchers at the Oak Ridge National Lab exposed plants to both neutral and acidic conditions to see how their growth changes. We found that the sex chromosome played a significant role in that response. So female plants responded predictably across the population when exposed to acidic stress. Their growth was all impacted in a similar way. Males, however, showed two separate responses. Some responded more favorably to acidic stress, but were more negatively impacted under neutral conditions, whereas other males showed the exact opposite response. So it's only once you have a reference genome that you can start to find fine-grained patterns in your data like this. Without a reference sequence, we wouldn't know which plants are actually male and female, and these differences in response would be lost. They would effectively cancel each other out. 
This enables us to pinpoint why there are differences in how males and females respond to different stress cues in peat bogs, which will allow us to better protect these ecosystems that are crucial to our global carbon cycle. The challenge of climate change affects us all, and it's a challenge that doesn't have a single simple answer. The consequences of climate change are very real and can be scary to think about. While there's reason to be concerned, there's also reason for hope. It certainly uh, uh, makes you pause and, and, and wonder, um, do, we, do we really realize, you know, what kind of, um, what we're doing to the environment, you know, as stewards of this earth? Uh, but at the same time, I'm, I tend to be somewhat optimistic. And um, I feel like uh, humans in general, we've, we've sort of evolved to the point where we're really good at using a lot of resources when it's right in front of us. But we're also pretty good at conserving those once we realize that they're limiting. And so I'm hoping that'll be the case. And then another reason for hope is, is kind of like the research that, that I was talking about that was supported by DOE and JGI and others where we're showing that you can have some of these beneficial interactions happening that we didn't otherwise know were happening. And perhaps we can understand those a little bit better and that might help us just a little bit in making these ecosystems more resilient um, to climate change. Thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition. We hope you appreciate the importance of peat logs in our fight against climate change. Next episode, we'll talk about how science is preparing us for future novel pandemics. Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama. We've got a campus full of scientists doing public research, alongside companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications and make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That includes everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If you find this podcast interesting, rate, review, like, and subscribe on the podcast app of your choice. And tell someone that you listen to this interesting little story about genetics. Knowledge is better when you share it. Thanks for joining us.